Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Um, and passing the torch is kind of the, you know, I found that cheesy image on the internet. So I put it up there because it was cheesy. It was the point. But really, this is about being a disciple. It's about the heartbeat of a follower of Christ. That when Christ transforms you, he captures your heart. He comes to dwell in you. He gives you his spirit. It's good that he went to the cross and died because the spirit comes to dwell in you. It's good that he's gone. But then how do you, what do you do after that? Well, it's called being a disciple. And being a disciple that just grows yourself, we become really bloated and disfigured when all we're doing is feeding ourselves. We have to be people that go out and feed others. And so this, I know we're, we're kind of right now, kind of the focus is on high school and college age. But in all reality, this isn't an age thing. It's about a maturity. Because there are some of you who may be a little older, but you're young in your faith. And you need some maturity. You need to be matured and grown in that. And so we're not, it's not just another step of children to youth ministry. It's about a whole life ministry in this church that we're going to share life together, um, which sometimes gets a little sticky, but I promise you it's worth it. So if you open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, I'm going to give you a little background on the man of t- who Titus is, and then we'll jump in. Um, we, we know that Paul had two very, um, not like, they're like son figures to him. We have Titus and Timothy, two very different men. We know that Titus is a Gentile, probably Greek-born, and probably saved at Antioch. He probably came around the church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were, um, and so he comes into that space, and he is he's saved. And we know that Timothy grew up in a Jewish home, well, a half-Jewish home. His dad didn't really teach him the faith. His mother and his grandmother taught him the Jewish faith. So you have two totally different upbringings in men. And in Timothy, Paul circumcises him as an adult, as a young man. He's circumcised. Well, why? Well, his whole upbringing is Jewish. He's going to have a ministry to the Jews. But Titus was a Gentile. He never forced him to be circumcised. As a matter of fact, when Paul goes to Jerusalem to correct the leaders, I mean, can you imagine, like the boldness of Paul makes me feel really small sometimes. Like here's a man who was a, he was a terrorist against Christians. He's converted and he has the audacity and his, the knowledge of his saving grace to go to the disciples in Jerusalem and say, you're not doing this right. This is wrong. Like the boldness of this man, it makes me cower a little bit that I wish I was that bold, but it also is an encouragement because I I know that there's so much more room for me to grow. So Paul takes Titus in and he says, hey, this is wrong. They agree and he sends him on his way. So you got two different men who are hanging out with Paul, mentored by Paul. They see how he works. They grow in boldness. Well, Paul writes letters to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy. It's kind of a hint that it's a Timothy, just just so you know. So he writes these letters to Timothy. And in them, Timothy, is a, he's, a, he's kind of a, he's a warrior. He stresses. He's put in charge of the church in Ephesus. One of the largest and most influential churches in that region. Eventually, we know that John, the disciple, is an elder in that church. So can you imagine that? You're this younger pastor, pastoring a church where you have the favorite disciple of Jesus as one of your elders. A little intimidating. Just a little bit. So he's there, and he's really nervous and really worried about things. So you have Paul writing to him, preach the word. Just preach the word. Preach the word. And then he says, you have a bad stomach. You need a little bit of wine, buddy. You need to have a drink. You have a bad stomach. You're so stressed out. 
You just, you need to relax. So Paul tells him, you need to relax. You need to calm down, Timothy. Well, what's he tell Titus? He doesn't have to tell Titus to calm down. Titus is a guy that kicks open doors and rushes in. When the church in Corinth is going crazy, like church gone wild, church in Corinth, read the letters of the first, first and second Corinthians, the church in Corinth is insane. Who's he send? Titus. Take my letter, correct them. Titus shows up, corrects them. When he completes that mission, Paul then sends him to Crete. You know who lives at Crete? Cretans. So you kind of, like, if you ever use that someone, you're a Cretan. You're a dullard. You're dense. Well, who, what's your problem? That's exactly who Paul sent Titus to go minister to, the Cretans. So what we have is a group of people on this island. They were, they were mercenaries. They were hired soldiers. They were not the philosophers of Athens. So when he sends Titus there, he sends the strongest man who is fearless, who's going to kick down doors and proclaim the gospel. To this day, um, the patron saint of the Army Chaplain Corps is Titus, St. Titus. And they have an award they give every year for in service to bringing faith to soldiers. It's, it's the Titus Award. So he, there's a strength in this man. That's who Paul's sending to the church at Crete. So he writes this letter, and it starts off with qualifications for leaders. He's helping him build a church. So we see the first thing is, who are your leaders? Here's how you pick their leaders. You need to be careful because, and you get down to the bottom of chapter three or chapter one in Titus one. Um, Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So there's there's this group of people that come after Paul and say, grace isn't enough. It's not just grace. You have to work for the love of God. You need to look a certain way. You need to dress a certain way. You need to be a certain way. It's not good enough. And so Paul sends Titus to smash all of this. It's grace and Jesus. Grace from Jesus, faith alone in Jesus alone. There is no work for salvation. That's hard for us. Martin Luther tells us we are hardwired for works-based righteousness. We feel we have to earn his faith. We have to earn his love. It's false. So Titus is there to stop that. Well, how's he going to stop this? What's his plan? What's Paul's counsel? Get good teachers and then teach sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accounts, what accords with sound doctrine. Teach them the truth. Teach them the truth. And then set a pattern for success. Set a pattern for success. What's that pattern for success? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older men are to be sober-minded, clear thinkers, not wanting to too much anger, not driven by too much greed, not driven by self, but sensible, wise. We hope that older men, as they live life, become wise. Now, we know also what Paul writes in Timothy, to don't let them discredit you because of your age. So this is a, this is a call to people who've walked longer in faith. You need to be sensible. You need to be sober-minded. You need to show love. Be sound in your faith. Like you shouldn't be rocked by everything that comes your way. Sound faith. So men, bring up the boys. Men, take care of the other men. Show them what it is to live. So that they aren't going down bad paths. 
He also says this to women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. I know he didn't say anything about men and wine, but they go, it's not like the women are not supposed to be slaves to wine, but men can be. I mean, this, this is a rolling conversation. Don't be drunk. Drunkards don't show a level of ability to abstain or don't show an ability of level of to do things in moderation. That if, you're, if you have an addiction like that, you have, then you need to get that fixed first and then you can share the truth of the gospel. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, anytime we talk about submissiveness in our day and age, people go crazy. We have to be very careful here. Now, if you have not heard me preach on this topic before, you can go on the website and you can find when we talked through Colossians, I spoke more specifically about it. Um, and, but we'll get there. We're going to go through first Timothy probably after the first of the year, but I just want you to key on a couple words. Like it's really important that we, when we read the scripture that we don't take it out of context. So who's it say that a woman's supposed to be submissive to? Her husband. Does it say that women shouldn't, should just do whatever your male boss says? That if a man walks in the room, you do what he says? Does it say any of that stuff? No. So get that out of your brain. Just that's not what's going on here. Um, what we're getting at is the whole picture of women raising children. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but men and women are biologically different. <laughs> Didn't know if you're aware of that. Um, that one sex... But male or female can have children and can give birth to children, and one sex cannot. I don't know if you took biology in high school or if you understand that, but some of us can have babies and some of us can't. That creates a difference in us. Now, we see that difference in Genesis. It's always dangerous when you start talking about Paul, where we should look at biblical manhood and womanhood as in Genesis. It's this picture of, I mean, there's a reason. that God doesn't do anything on accident. There's a reason why he takes a rib from Adam. Did he have to do that? But what did he make Adam from? Dirt. I mean, that's his name means dirt. Adam, Adamay, Hebrew for dirt. Makes him from dirt. Why didn't he just do that with a woman? Because there's supposed to be a bond. There's supposed to be a connection. And it's specifically the rib. He could have taken a toe. He could have had us born with six toes and we took one off each side and said, here's a woman made for my toe. He could have done any of those things, but he didn't. Why didn't he? Because there's a very symbolic and a real, it's the rib, it's the side, that our relationships as husband and wife are to be side by side stewarding all that God has given us. It's to be a side by side relationship. Anytime a woman walks a step behind a man, She's not walking in the biblical nature of her womanhood. And any time a man walks a step behind his wife, he is not walking in his biblical nature of manhood. It's to be a side-by-side relationship. He made us different. He made us with different roles and different jobs, but he did not make us. We have equal dignity. Any man that abuses a woman is outside of who he is as a man. Anybody tries to use the scriptures as a defense for abusiveness is wicked and evil and needs to be corrected. I shared with you before that there's a first century elder book written that says any man that would be heavy handed with his wife needs to get a visit from the pastor and the elders of the church. These weren't police. This would be like Brian and I showing up at your house and saying, what's your problem, buddy? You laid hands on your wife. We need to talk. And it wouldn't be much talking. 
So there's a clear call in the scriptures that men and women are equal, of equal dignity. Now, all that Paul writes, if you go read what Paul writes and what Peter writes, there's a higher ideal at play. This isn't a sermon on marriage. We'll, we can do that if you want. We can talk. The higher ideal is that your life is to be a reflection of the gospel. That Jesus is more important than your happiness. So Paul tells these women, raise the kids. Be in the home. Is Paul saying that a woman can't work? Have you read the book of Philippians? There's a very wealthy woman in the book of Philippians named Lydia. And she has houses in multiple countries. She's a very wealthy woman. Paul never tells her to stop working and go home and get barefoot and pregnant real fast. He never says that to her. She funds the entire ministry pretty much in Philippi. So this idea that Paul hates women, he's against women, women can't work, women can't have, that's so false. But Paul does say that your marriage should be about the gospel. Your marriage should be about Jesus. So teach your children that. He continues, likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. There's a, have you ever been around people that are, I don't want to say, have raised children? Can't say old because that could be all kinds of ages. You've been around people that have raised children. They're out of the house. What kind of comments do they have about the children today? These kids are all brats and how those parents don't know how to discipline. And if they would just spank that kid, it'd be better and all right. Some of you are that person and some of you've been around that person. What if instead you actually live life with these people? Like, do you know the background of any of the people that you're complaining about their kids running around the restaurant? Do you have any idea what's going on in that home? Have you ever been around a family who one of the spouses, the ones that we know, that are one of the spouses serving overseas in the military? So mom or dad is gone for a year at a time, and it's very hard for the parent left behind to be a strict disciplinarian when they're just trying to hold things together. So you can walk in and go, your kids are a wreck. What are you doing? If you would just X, Y, and Z, these kids would be perfect little angels. Which, again, they don't understand the scriptures because we're all born wicked. Nobody's an angel. So they, if you would just do these six things, pe- things are perfect. And you don't speak into the heart of a spouse being gone, a divorce, tension, financial woes. You speak to none of that, and you just say, you should discipline your kids more. How about if you came alongside and you, older men sit down? You as couples sit down with a younger couple and say, hey, you know, um, like Amber had to correct me once. Well, okay, more than once, but this one time specifically. <laughs> Eli's bouncing off the wall. Like, what? Why he's not going to bed. And he's, he's having problems sleeping through the night and all these things. And she looks at me one night and says, um, honey, it's not exactly how it went. <laughs> it's probably not wise for you to let your son drink some of your Mountain Dew at six o'clock at night. Oh, you're right. That has caffeine in it. I forgot. There's some wisdom you can go along with this. There's some wisdom that you can impart to other people. That an evening meal, a snack of chocolate and sugar, is probably not good. And then you're pulling your hair out going, why don't my kids go to sleep? I don't know, because you're a moron. Like, I don't... But what? instead of complaining, how about you just came alongside? Came alongside and said... Hey, you know, at dinner, I noticed that, you know, your kids, you think maybe, you think maybe that could be part of the, 
I never thought of that. Yeah, when my kids did this, this is what happened. And, you know, okay, I'll give that a shot. Like instead of judgmentalism from a distance, how about we just step into life with people? So Paul's commanding Titus, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Urge them to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Again, Paul always lifts us to a higher ideal. It's not just so people don't talk about you. Make sure that all you respect good works, your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Um, it's about a higher ideal. I started teaching an American... Well, it's American Wyoming, but it's a government class at LCCC. I haven't taught American national government for about six or seven years, so I was a little intimidated by that um, because I just haven't. I don't like 24-hour cable news, so I don't pay attention to a lot of politics except what I read. So I'm just like, I gotta learn this stuff, but how do I keep my sanity and still teach it? And anyway, so I had to go for training. Every adjunct professor had to go through Title IX training this time. It's required, mandated to go through it. It's been a long time since I've been out of education world like that or a corporate world. Title IX, when I hear it, is male and female athletics. So Title IX training is equality in athletics. Why we have a girls' soccer team and not a boys? Because there's that's what I thought. So I go in thinking I really don't understand why I'm going to Title IX training. I'm not a coach, but I guess I have to, so I'll go. Go to Title IX training. It's more. It's it's. They've renamed it. It's sexual harassment in the workplace. That's the training. Which breaks my heart that even needs to be done, but it has to be done. So I'm sitting through the training, and the guy who comes in to speak, he more or less says, these are bad behaviors that will get you fired and put in jail, and here's the behaviors that you should do. And what he was saying is, it's okay for your life to, if you think this joke's funny, or you think this is okay, and you know, this is maybe a little off-color or whatever, or, or you're attracted to this person and you want to make advance, that, that's great, it's your home life, but at work you need to be careful. So what he was advocating was, watch all this stuff and live this way, but at work, just be a different person. And it won't get you fired. Just be different, be different at work. So what he's advocating is a dual life. To be double-minded, as the scriptures would call it. And it's everything I had in me not to stand up and go, this is garbage. This is so outside of a biblical worldview. Like we read the scriptures and Jesus talks about what comes out of your mouth is what's deep in your heart. That James tells us to guard our tongues because it's the, it's the place where evil and wickedness flies out. So if you're at home doing all of this stuff and you think this is funny and these things are how they are and you go to work, what's going to happen inevitably? It's going to come out of you. And then you're left going, uh, I don't have a job now. Why? Well, I follow, I tried to follow it. If I just wouldn't have said that one thing, then I'd have been fine. Instead of going to the root of the problem and saying that this is not the way to live. Well, why? Paul tells us. So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. If you tell people you go to church, you tell people you're a Christian, you, it's part of who you are, and then they see this whole other side of you. You're a double, you have two lives. Which one do you think people are going to be drawn to? Do you think if you live a double life that people are going to say, well, you know, you love Jesus and you get to do all these things and that's great. I, I like your Jesus. It becomes the caricature of buddy Jesus, the big thumb up, thumbs up and the big smile that we see. It's not accurate. Because we know out of our hearts spews what comes out of our mouths. 
Isn't that the biggest problem we have? I'm not saying it to be perfect, because we're all works in progress. But you shouldn't have a clear division. Like, I go to church on Sunday, and this is who I am. And the rest of the week, this is who I am. And I put on a new face when I come to church. We come to church, and we live our whole weeks with the bumps and the bruises and the bad behavior. and Like, nobody asks you to polish yourself up and be perfect to come to church. Christ takes you in his grace and mercy and love exactly where you're at, and then he loves you enough to grow you to be his child. That's the beauty of sanctification. The big term is progressive sanctification. What's that mean? It's a slow and long process. It's a slow and long process. We don't expect you to be perfect because we can't be. But why? It's so that no one has anything evil to say about us. It's not about your happiness. It's not about you being a good person. It's so that no one has anything evil to say about you. So when you share the truth of who Jesus is, they don't look at you and go, you're a Christian? You believe this stuff? You're crazy. I've seen how you live. Like how easy is it for me to stand up and tell you about men and women, a biblical man, a biblical womanhood, to tell you that this is the way it's supposed to be. And I don't say, well, go talk to Amber. Like you hear come out of my mouth this stuff about men and women, and you think from a pastor, well, he's saying that I should just go home and stay at home and all these things. And his wife stays at home, so that must be why she's doing it, because he's a jerk in his house. Like if you have in your brain that when I walk in my house, I go, woman, where's dinner? You've spent zero time with my wife. Zero. Very quickly, my food, if there is any food being made, if, she, if it's her turn, it's my turn to cook, it's going to be put in the garbage disposal or she's going to throw something at me. Or more likely, I'll just get the look. And then that scares me. Like if you, like if I did that, if I talked to you about children and living life with each other, and if I didn't, like if Eli wasn't a part of this church family, if you didn't see how my kids are or around, like are my kids perfect? Of course not. Before you all got here, they sat in those two chairs by the sound booth and were touching each other and swirling around, and I was about to go crazy. Can you just sit down and be quiet? Like, can't you calm down? Like, my kids aren't perfect. They aren't. But you should see as they grow, and they grow in faith and stature in this church, that it's because we live life together. It's not because Eli and I are just constantly reading the Bible, or Savannah is constantly reading the Bible, and we're just little, you know, focused, and I teach them inductive Bible, so it's all we do. Yesterday, Eli had this pent-up energy. It's been raining, can't go outside, all this stuff. And he goes, Dad, I want to wrestle. Which means he's almost nine. He wants to see if he can take his dad. <laughs> and with Eli, when we wrestle, he starts throwing fists. And so I, you know, I'm quick enough now. I can deflect him. I can shove him down. He usually gets hurt. And then Amber will say, imagine that. You heard Eli again. Like, hey, he took a swing. I'm just defending myself. <laughs> but what if that's all I did with him? So when you have pent-up energy, you go wrestle your dad. What would that look like if all of a sudden that's pent-up around his sister? Or he jumped on his mom's back like he jumps on mine. So through the course of his life, growing up to this ripe age of nine, it's been taught to him very specifically that you will not be rough with your sister. This is your mother. If you are rough with her, you will answer to dad when he finds out. Like, this is, this is how we work. This is how this rolls. We can, like, how, if I just said, you know what, just go punch stuff. 
How, what's he going to be like when he leaves our house? He's going to be a mess. But so, am I, do I sit him down and go, this is biblical manhood and womanhood, son, and here's... A, no, you model it to him. You model it, and you live life together, and he sees daddy work. He sees how daddy leads his house. He sees how daddy deals with Savannah differently deals with him. Like, he has to see these things. So what if you would bring some people along to show them the same? It's about the gospel. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Again, it's about the gospel. Now, we don't have time. We'll get, if you read um, the book to Philemon or Philemon, however you want to say it, the Bible is very clear in its disagreement with the practice of slavery. It's very clear. But a lot of it we get swayed. It doesn't specifically say this. And so we get a little confused by what pastors did in the 1800s in the South. And we get a little confused because it doesn't specifically say. But you have to look at when slavery is seen in the Bible, it is not the slavery that existed in this country. It's different. There was a year of Jubilee. There's seven years. It was a debtor's slavery. Now, there was some capturing. However, it's more like what Moses wrote about divorce. It's not that Moses said, hey, divorce is great. He allowed for divorce and wrote about that in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He writes about it because if he didn't have some barriers put around, then it'd be a free-for-all. We know that the Middle Eastern culture had a, a disdain for women. And if you decide you didn't want a wife anymore, you want a new one, you just kicked her out or you killed her. So by Moses, by God working through Moses to allow for divorce is not a condoning of it in the Bible. Same with slavery. Just because Paul is saying this is how we're going to act is not a condoning of the practice. There's a couple of great books. You can read Bloodlines by John Piper. You can read a couple others that spell this out way, way better than I can right now at the time. But the core, again, is why. So everything may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So we look at it this way. The word of God may not be reviled, so an opponent may not put to shame having nothing evil to say about us, and so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Titus teaches us that life is about the gospel, not about your happiness. So in your home, live a certain way. Why? So people don't defame the word of God. At work, be good to your employees and be a good worker. Have you guys seen what some... There's a, I forget what the show is. There was a, a movie or TV show where these employees at a big box retail store like a Sam's Club created a, um, their own little lounge on top of some shelves. They had a ladder. It was a top secret man cave kind of area. And you think, we laugh about that. But then there, a few months ago, there was a, a, like a 10 or 11-year-old boy that was living in Walmart for about a month. And he found himself, he made himself a cubbyhole in Walmart. And at night, he'd go and steal things and get food. And he just made himself a little cubbyhole. Well, I think sometimes... As employees, we can't just get so lazy that, our, that the gospel of our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ we're trying to teach through our lives, dissuades from the truth. So when your boss, you're stealing, you're pilfering, you're doing things, you're, and they come to you and say, what's the problem? I thought you were a Christian. I thought this. I thought that. Well, then you're defaming the gospel. How you deal with your children, how you and your wife have interactions, how you, like, if that's bad, then that's 
it downplays the beauty of Jesus Christ. So Paul's telling Titus that everything's about Jesus. It's all about him. So all of life is about the gospel, everything. It must be about that. Are you going to make your life about you? It's very selfish of you. Are you going to make all of life about you? So then what happens when you die? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's his sacrifice on the cross. That he paid everything for you and for me. We went to the Snowies yesterday. Yeah. Um, And so it made me think of this quote. If you're a Christian, then the cross of Jesus stands like a mountain of granite across your life. Immovably testifying to God's love for you and his determination to bring you safely into his presence. It's as Paul said in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So like, you go up to the, like, have you, maybe I'm the only one in all of that. You stand there and you're like, that's massive. And the Snowies aren't even the biggest mountain range. I mean, you could see some more massive ones. Like you just look and you're like, this is a giant. So if the cross of Jesus Christ testifies to my life like that giant slab of rock, and it's bigger than that, that my whole life is a testimony of the cross, then why would I let anything scare me? Why would I have fear in sharing my faith or bringing other people alongside to live? Like the cross is all that I should put in front of me. That he did everything for me. And if the creator of the universe, we read in Colossians chapter 1 that you know, it's grace that's come down, that he is God in flesh, that he holds everything together by his mouth, that in John chapter 1 we see that he's the word become flesh, like that's who we worship. I think we forget that. that we worship the one that made everything. We worship the, the being in God who holds the molecules together that keeps your body together. That's who we worship. And he loves you and he loves me. And he died for you. Paul continues on with Titus. We'll wrap this up. For the grace of God has appeared. Again, Colossians chapter 1. The grace of God has appeared. Like you know his love for you because the grace of God has appeared. His name is Jesus. That in the Trinity there was perfect harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was nothing else needed in that relationship. And out of his love for his creation, Jesus stepped out of that to be fully human and fully God. That grace appeared. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions, passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So why all of this? Why our relationship? Why does our marriages matter? Why do, how do we train younger people matter? Why does how we work matter? Why do all of things matter? Why does it matter? Like, who cares? If you're coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ... You're saved. You can't lose that salvation. So just go do whatever. It doesn't matter. Well, why? Well, it says right here. The hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Until he comes again, we work. Until he shows up again, we have a job to do. 
Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Share the gospel. Until he comes back, we have work to do. You can't retire from being a Christian. You don't get to move on. You don't get to say, I've put in my time. Now, maybe it's in a specific ministry. Maybe it's in a specific area, but you don't get to just sit on the recliner and just bask in the grace of God and just hang out. Like you have influence. You have people near you. you have, you've got work to do. But declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, exhort, we love that part. Encourage people. Be the encourager. We don't like the rebuke part, do we? We don't like either side of that. We don't like to be the one giving the rebuke because isn't it awkward to sit down with someone and say, the way you're living your life is, it's a mess. Or I saw how you handled your wife there. It's not right, bro. You can't do that. Like that's, what are you doing? Hey, I saw you um, at the game and you were acting like a fool. Not because we were winning and it's great, but you were... Your tailgating party was out of control. Maybe we should reflect on that a little bit. Maybe I should help you out a little bit. We don't like that, do we? We don't like to sit down. And we, don't, we definitely don't like to be rebuked. Like I talk all the time about accountability, how we need to be accountable to each other, how you should hold me accountable, how the elders hold me accountable a lot. And I don't like any of that. Like someone comes to me and says, hey, you said this, you did this. I don't know if it's a good reflection of the church. I don't know if this is what you meant. I don't know if this translated right. And we have one of two reactions. The first reaction is to put a wall up and say, you don't know me. How dare you? What's your problem? You're so judgmental. You can't judge me. Even though the scriptures are very clear that as Christians we are called to judge each other. Like we get that in the church. You, we shouldn't judge. You're right. We don't judge non-believers. We don't judge people outside the family of God. But we're clearly called in Corinthians to judge each other. The whole idea in Matthew chapter 15 of, or no, 18. Matthew 18 of going to a brother and coming after you. And you know the phrase we all hear all the time where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. And so we'll say things like, well, two or three of us are together, so we're having church. We forget the context that it says where two or three are gathered, my name, I'm there. It's when you're going to someone to correct them. So Jesus is very clearly about correcting each other. So the first response is to say, no way. You're wrong. You can't judge me. And that's the natural reaction. That's our fleshly reaction. The biblical reaction is to take a step back and go, I don't like criticism. But maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe this is a call to examine my own life. What's in my heart? What does, what needs, what does God need to reveal about who I am that needs to be changed? And that's where we see a mark of maturity. Where someone can come to you in love, and instead of going, just get out of my face, you don't know me. We say, I don't see that about myself. I don't see that, but let me pray about it. Can you show me? Can you tell me the context? Can you explain it to me? Can you help me? We should have a posture to say, help me understand. Help me see this. About I don't see that. We often don't see our own flaws, do we? Help me. Help me. But you do it in love. 
And so we're called to this. Declare these things about the gospel. Let no one disregard you. Build people up and correct people when they need to be corrected. Isn't that the most loving thing you can do? Like I know the scriptures constantly talk about father and parent, father and son relationship and mother and daughter relationship and child relationship. Isn't that the whole idea of parenting? I exhort my children and raise them up. I encourage them. And when they correct it, I correct them. But I do it all in love. So I guess we're all, we never really grow up, do we? We constantly need correction. We constantly need lifted up. So Paul's telling Titus to do this on a huge scale. So think about that in the terms of this idea of a Titus 2 ministry. Bring people alongside you. Build them up. Encourage them. Show them how to live. And when, so you build a, develop a relationship with them so that when things go off a little bit, you have the privilege and the right and the authority in their lives. You've got social equity to say, hey, I don't know if this is wise. Will they listen then? Of course. They might not like it. Might get mad. Might take two or three days. But they're going to let that soak if they're seeking Christ in all of their life. So the work isn't done. This is a quote from George Ladd. This is why we're driving this home. We have to be a church in the tension of this world, of the now and the not yet. That we live here on earth, but we're, we're yearning for heaven. We're yearning for a new creation. You can't turn on the news or listen to the radio or read the paper and not just hear all the stuff that goes on in the world. And if you have any affection for Jesus Christ at all, there's part of you that'll go, could you just come back? Could you take this away? Could you stop this? But until he does come back, we have work to do. So George Ladd puts it this way when it comes to missions. God alone knows the definition of terms. He's talking about the second coming. When's all this end? God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are. Only God knows exactly the meaning of evangelize. He alone will know when that objective has been accomplished. But I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is to complete it. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. So the heart that we have in this is, it's logic. If Jesus hasn't returned, the new heaven and the earth hasn't appeared, then we still have work to do. And sometimes we get in debates. Isn't that how we are? Well, I don't know. Like, what nations and should we? And what's he really mean by those terms that all the nations would hear? Does God really mean that all 6,000 unreached people groups need to hear the gospel? Or does he mean the continents? And so we'll sit around and we'll debate this. And we'll have like coffee and we'll have discussions and we'll have seminars. And instead, let's just go. Let's just raise up a group of people to go to those places. Let's partner with ministries in this community that are going to those places. Go to the unreached people groups. Because we, I mean, it's logic. If we're all still here, Jesus hasn't come back. Right? So until then, we have work to do. I listened to a sermon this week. Um, by Matt Chandler. And he talks about the, the tension of Christians and churches trying to find their identities. Because we see all these things in the world and the progressive movement from the beginnings of the 1900s, even before that, historically, you have the progressive movement saying we can fix society. We can fix it. 
If we just work real hard, we can fix it. We'll educate, we'll train, we'll distribute the goods, we'll redistribute the income in some countries, we'll do these things, we're going to fix it. So we get our hands dirty. We get calluses on our hands. We try to help. We walk into the mess. We walk into the fray. But we forget, if we forget that the only power we have is the power of Jesus Christ, then we're just going in. At the end of the day, all we've done is built some stuff. And not a single person's been saved, and heaven is not any more full, and heaven is not even ready to appear on this planet because we haven't shared the gospel with all the nations. So while we have calluses on our hands, we have to put calluses on our knees. We need to be in prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit to constantly bathe us in grace and motivate us with the knowledge that we have work to do. He's our only hope. We wait for his return. He is our hope. We can't be optimists and we can't be pessimists. We can only have hope in Jesus Christ. That's all we can have. It's hope in him and him alone. And so until then, we pour out our lives to everyone to bring that hope in. To, to think that there are thousands upon thousands of students coming onto this campus that have no hope. They put all their faith into an education, into a career, into whatever relationships they're going to fall into on campus, that that's where their hope is found. And how many lives are going to be decimated? How many lives are going to be rocked because they put their hope in themselves, their hope into someone else, or hope into an education, or hope into a campus? They put all their hope into that. And then at the end of the four years or five years, however long it takes, they walk out with a degree and all they've got is a piece of paper. And education, all education is worthwhile, but where's their hope? They're right now in the hospital just down the road. There are dozens and dozens of people that are laying in hospital beds, awaiting news, and they have no hope. Then in this community, there are children being raised in homes that have no hope in them. That should crush our hearts. To know that the hope that you have in the saving faith of Jesus Christ is not known to people in this town, is not known to people in this world. Like, how do you get through this? How do you, we, we just spent time in prayer for people that are dying of cancer, going into surgery. How do you get through any of that without the hope of Jesus Christ? Your own willpower? Eating lots of vitamins and kale? Like, who really eats that? Like, all that stuff, like, that's what you put your hope in? Is in that? Our hope is only found in Jesus Christ. And so one of the most unloving things you could do is to not share that hope with those who desperately need it. That would be the most unloving thing you could do. To have the answers of life, the hope of Jesus Christ, in the palm of your hands and deep in your heart, and you just decide, I'll just invite him to church. And we'll let the church experience make that happen. It's not good enough. It's not the call in our lives. I just read you all of chapter 2 of Titus. Did you see anywhere in there that the call in Titus was to build a really cool church that people would show up and listen to somebody preach? What did it say? It said, bring people into your life and show them the hope of Jesus Christ. That's the call in all of our lives. You don't get to opt out of that. The idea of Christians who refuse to share their faith is an oxymoron. Your life writes the hope of Christ everywhere you go.
So in the next few weeks, you'll hear more about the idea of bringing people alongside. We've got one small group when Sunday school's launching next week. We would love for some of you to open up your homes to bring people and community into your house. Don't stress over, I can't, I don't, I'm not a good Bible teacher. Well, no one is. Are you willing to share your life, to open up your home, to wrestle over scripture with people? We would love to see more and more of you living in life, living life in community with other people in this church. Because that's where our hope is found. It's in a bunch of people who love Jesus, put their hope in him, and they do life together. There's no other way to live that has any value or richness in it whatsoever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would reign in our hearts, that we would see you as all-satisfying, as the answer to all of our needs, that we can walk out of this place with the confidence in the truth of the gospel, that you made this world perfect. Our sin fractured it. That you came with a rescue plan in the name of Jesus. And we're left with the response. And our only response is our lives. So I pray, Lord, as we go about this week, that you will wear on us. Help us to cling to the truth of your word. We love you, Jesus. Amen.